2: Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play.
3: Greetings listeners, it's time for the February episode of Radio Astronomy. I'm news editor Elizabeth Pearson and I'm joined on the podcast today by staff writer Ian Todd. Hello. Coming up later in the episode, editor Chris Bramley and our reviews editor Paul Money will be taking a look at the observing highlights that are coming up in 2021. But first, me and Ian are going to look at some of the things that are coming up in terms of spaceflight and science in the next year. And probably the biggest one that's coming up is all of the missions that are due to get to Mars this February. So back in July, not one, but three separate space missions began their journey to the red planet. Uh, every 26 months, there is a launch window when the planets earth and Mars are aligned such that you can make the shortest trip. So if you're trying to get to Mars, that's the time you want to launch. And the last one was back in July and they're all due to make their approach in February throughout the month. So we're going to have a lot of news coming from the red planet at that time. Um, there's a big NASA mission that's happening, and that NASA mission is the Perseverance rover. And this is kind of the culmination of a huge project that's been going on for decades and decades, which is to try and actually bring back samples of Mars rock from the red planet to Earth. Perseverance itself won't actually be doing that. What it will be doing is it will be roving around the surface picking up rocks and dust and creating little sample caches. Um, it's going to store them in, in like these giant test tubes, sort of overgrown test tubes um, that it will then club together and leave in certain places across the Mars surface where a future mission that is currently being planned by ESA and NASA will come along, pick up those samples and return them to Earth, hopefully within the next decade. You know, this is a mission that that people have been talking about since we first started going to Mars. Since we first started going to the Moon, like sixty years ago, people have been wanting to do this, and we're finally actually beginning to make progress to it finally actually happening. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean that um, even just that that concept of landing on Mars and then lifting up, lifting off again. I mean, that, mm. you know, that, that 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 lifting off from Mars and getting back to Earth that must be just just be. One of the most, one of the kind of toughest aspects of the mission.
3: Yeah, it's it's useful in that when if you're not bringing people back, if you're just sending robots, then you don't need to bring as much stuff back with you. It's perfectly fine to just leave a robot on the surface of Mars. People tend to get a bit annoyed if you do that with people. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so so the return capsule is going to be much much smaller than you know the perseverance rover. The perseverance rover is 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 sort of going to be the size of, of like, a car. Mm -hmm. It's it's not a small thing. Um, But the actual return capsule will probably only be, you know, like the size of a shoebox maybe. (laughs) I don't know exactly how big they're they're planning on making that, (laughs) Um, which does make launching a lot easier. (laughs) Still challenging, but a lot easier. Um, And it's actually going to end up being a three-part mission. So Perseverance is the first part. Then you've got the second part, which is the bit that goes and lands on the surface, um, picks up the samples, and then launches it into Mars orbit again, Mm
2: -hmm.
3: which is an entire mission in itself. And then you have a third mission, which goes along, captures that sample thing that's in orbit, and then brings it back to Earth. So you've got these kind of three different stages that have got to happen. There's a lot of moving parts, so hopefully it should all go to plan. Yeah,
0: (laughs) And I suppose this all sort of pertains back to you know the question of what was Mars like in its ancient history was it was it wet? Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if so, did did life ever exist there?
3: Exactly. These these are the big questions. Um, and while previous rovers and previous landers have done a pretty good job of of getting an idea of what Mars is like today. Curiosity and those uh, the Spirit Opportunity, all of those rovers have done a good job of of tracking water on mars or the history of water on mars that's always the big question there's still only so much stuff so much equipment that you can put on these these rovers these landers um you can miniaturize stuff down quite a lot but there's still only so much you can do when you're having to send your lab to mars it's much more efficient to to take your sample bring it back to earth and then you can look at it in the biggest most advanced laboratories in the entire world it's it's a much better way of doing things
0: yeah and also you know as we've seen with sort of like for example the rocks brought back from the Apollo missions you know you can mm-hmm. you can store them for future generations when te- Absolutely. Te- when technology's better when we you know know a bit more of what we're looking for future 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 planetary scientists will be able to access those in decades to come and and, and yeah. study them.
3: Yeah it, it's it's very much it's about the long game with yeah. these 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 missions um it's not I mean, Perseverance, when it eventually lands, I'm sure NASA will make a big deal about it and they'll send back loads of selfies and (laughs) do all of the things that they've done for the other rovers. But it's the the real scientific payoff is going to be uh, quite a long game. So that's one to watch. However, NASA, they've been at Mars since the 1970s. They've done lots of things there. The other two missions that are currently on the way to Mars, it's their first ever time That they will be attempting to approach Mars. Um, In fact, in one case, it's their first time they've done a planetary mission at all. We have China who are sending their Tianwen-1 mission, and that consists of both an orbiter that will stay in orbit and act as a relay station and a landing station and rover. Uh, the precise details of what this will do and what they hope to achieve is a bit vague. China aren't terribly good at telling the rest of the world what it is that they're trying to do, but it is part again of China's long-term goals of really becoming a, a powerhouse in in the field of space flight and space exploration. They are making incredible leaps and bounds. The amount that they've come on that that, that Chinese space agency has come on in in the last couple of years is is quite amazing building on the successes and, and what previous missions such as by NASA and, and the Soviet Union have learned. You've probably heard a lot of – we've talked on the podcast previously about their, their Changi series, which is on the moon. Um, Tianwen is going to be a very similar thing, but on Mars. Um, so it will have a tiny rover, um, and the rover is mostly about how do you operate on Mars. It, it, it's, it's a, there, there will be doing some science on it. It has got some scientific equipment of it on on the rover, um, but it will be mostly teaching the Chinese exactly how do you work and operate on Mars.
0: Do we expect more sort of um, collaboration between NASA and uh, the, the Chinese space agency with regard to their? Or Are they sort of like a you know f- far flung corners of the of the red planet, and, and they won't actually you know. <laughs> know
3: they have to talk to each other to make sure that there's going to be no crashes yeah. and um, N- uh, NASA is very open with their data, so it's there for anyone to use um, and China has been using it as well. I know that there's a lot of people at NASA who would like to be more involved with the Chinese, um, mm. but there is a there is a law in the US for various political reasons. NASA is not allowed to collaborate in a lot of ways with China. On space, mm-hmm. in fact, I don't think any US company is allowed to collaborate with Chinese companies when it comes to space flight, um, which has caused quite a few problems over the years. They, the, I, the Chinese are working very strongly with a lot of European countries, though. They've worked with uh, DLR, which is the the German space agency, on various bits of their the, the Chang'e rovers and so on. So there is definitely a lot of collaboration going on, not as much as you might expect, not as much as as someone say like NASA does, but there is still a fair amount of collaboration going on there. It'll be interesting to see how that one progresses. And then finally, we have the Hope Orbiter, which is from the United Arab Emirates. And the UAE is actually a fairly recent entrant into the sort of world of space flight. Um, so you've been, you know, sending up missions for a past couple of decades. It's Hope Probe um is going to stay in orbit. It's not going to land this one. Um, and it will be looking at the atmospherics and dust storms and gases being lost to space. And again, this is part of the UAE's approach to to trying to become a space power. It, it's, it, it's part of the nation's sort of long-term scientific goals of of setting itself forward as a kind of progressive, technologically advanced in, in that, that sphere in the in the world stage. So Space flight is a lot more political than you think it is. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but that'll be really interesting to see because it's, it's a dedicated, basically, meteorological station, just looking at the weather and the atmosphere around Mars, which is incredibly like interesting. Um, it'll be looking at gases being lost to space. And whenever you talk about Mars, though it's not the only scientific interesting thing about it, People always talk about the potential of habitability and the potential for life, or sending people to Mars, and knowing exactly what's going on with the atmosphere and what it might have been like in the past uh, is, is is vital to being able to answer those questions.
0: Yeah, that's right. When when that um, when the UAE uh, press release came out last year, and um, one of the things that they'd sort of said about the Hope mission was that it's going to be able to you know potentially help with sort of like weather forecasting on Mars because you know people mm-hmm. would know will know about these re- um sort of horrendous dust storms that can engulf the planet and if you got yeah. if you got if you got human beings working and living on Mars and that could be potentially um you know potentially pretty pretty lethal but um it's it's interesting because those you know sort of those the NASA missions looking at um Mars's past and you know its ancient history and whether or not it was wet and it's really interesting those aspects of the of the Mars missions that are sort of looking to the future and, and the prospect of of getting humans in there. Because one of the things I was I was going to say earlier on in the podcast is this um, kind of sample collection and, and return missions. It's sort of the next step to actually getting geologists on Mars. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could, imagine if you could actually get human geologists with labs to to live and work on Mars. I mean, you yeah. just wonder like is is that is that within the realms of our of our lifetimes? Do you think is?
3: I think it's it's a possibility. Yeah. Um, I think we might might see it. We might be old and we might be grey when it happens, but I, I hope that we would. There's there's a lot of people who are now making because it's always been one of those things. that's like oh yes, we're going to send people to Mars, but now people are making a concerted effort. Yeah, and with companies like SpaceX and Blue Origins and things like that, um, and Boeing creating Q capsule Q capsules, crew capsules. It's not an easy word to say. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think that people will get to Mars. The question is: Is it going to be a government? Is it going to be a private company? Is it just going to be, you know, Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk with their billions and billions of dollars? I know. Um, I know. Yeah. It's yeah. So it's it's an interesting interesting time to be in to see this evolving. Um, but we'll we'll worry about the moon first, I think, <laughs> when it comes to that.
0: Yeah, um, I suppose one of the other big stories potentially this year, hopefully, is uh, the James Webb Space Telescope, because after years of delays, and uh, JWST is due to finally launch on, on Halloween this year, mm. 31st of October 20, 2021. Um, anyone who's been following this story will know that, you know, in 2018, launch was delayed till 2020. And then last year it was delayed again due to coronavirus. You know, coronavirus kind of just messed everything up last year, didn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, but it was interesting reading that some of the stuff that actually got done with the JWST project last year, despite all the um, complications that came with, you know, the a, a global pandemic. So they were able to do uh, deployment testing of jwst's large mirrors Um, anyone who's seen a picture um, of the james webb space telescope will the first thing you notice is the huge hexagonal gold plated mirrors so they've sort of been testing unfurling those and they've been testing like folding the telescope up because it has to be folded up mm-hmm. to fit into the ariana 5 launcher and then it'll be like unfurled in the space and they've been testing um the ability to command the instruments remotely they've been systems checks so just you know despite COVID-19 and and all the problems that Mm. came with that last year, Um, JWST uh, team still have obviously made a lot of progress. And yes, towards the end of the year, it's planned to be launched. Um, And it's really sort of, one of the things that people say about it is that it's sort of a successor to the Hubble Space Telescope. It's going to be able to collect like six times more light than Hubble. Uh, And Mm. I suppose that's sort of the basis upon which they're sort of, NASA are sort of, well, almost, you know, selling it to the public for want of a better word. But yeah, you know, this the, the JWST when it's op- operating and when scientists start studying the data, start studying its its data has the the potential to sort of retell the story of of the universe, you know, because um mm. it's going to be able to peer so deep into the universe that it can see what the early universe was like because that light from shortly after the big bang, those first stars and galaxies, just, you know, takes billions of years to, to get to earth. So the the further back in time ta- the further into space you look, the further back in time you effectively look. So JWST could potentially give scientists evidence and clues as to you know how the first stars formed, potentially even how our solar system formed. And it can look in infrared because that light, as it's travelling um, across space for those billions of years, it gets sort of stretched by the expansion of the universe, and so that mm-hmm. it's 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 sort of red shifted. So um, the JWST's infrared vision will be able to help scientists see that and, you know, gather information about the birth and assembly of galaxies. Also, uh, clues about dark matter and dark energy as well. And those, you know, sort of uh, burning questions um, relating to gravity and the acceleration of the expansion of the universe. And sort of a bit maybe sort of less cosmological. um, It's also going to be observing the atmospheres of potentially habitable exoplanets, like the the famous TRAPPIST-1 system that most people will know about, those those Earth-like planets that were discovered a few years ago. I mean, I, I think, you know, a lot of people will probably be kind of you know, fairly jokingly cynical about JWST because there have been quite a few delays, but it looks like 2021 is gonna finally be the year that's it's, that it's launched.
3: It's it definitely looks like it is on track. Yeah. Um it might even, there there's a chance it might get delayed, but it's <laughs> it's we're talking delays of six months, not years. Yeah. It's because, you know, this is like my entire time that I've been doing this job, and like even before this, before I was when I was doing my PhD, it was always people were like, Oh, we're building the JWST. Um it'll happen, it'll come. And, and it finally, you know, sort of like 10 years down the road, it's finally possibly going up is, is again, it's really interesting, exciting to, <laughs> exciting to see. I'm interested to see what the pictures look like, I mean, because everybody, you know, it, they, they, they talk about it being the successor to Hubble. But it's actually a very different telescope. It's like, if, if you look at the pictures, the most notable difference is it's not silver, it's gold. Mm. because it's looking at infrared and infrared reflects better on gold in case anybody was wondering why that was yeah i'm just really because also that you know like the hubble images have become so iconic you know like the whole hubble palette thing when you're creating astro images it's like will we have a jwst palette
0: <laughs> oh imagine that yeah astrophotographers <laughs> using the jwst palette that'd be cool wouldn't it <laughs>
3: <laughs> that would be interesting My, it's a bit trickier to take the, the, the whole reason why you put an eye on infrared telescope up in space is because the atmosphere tends to eat it um eat, eat infrared light coming from distant galaxies and things
0: but yeah. yeah yeah i mean that's that's the other thing you know when you think about hubble's images you know the, the first images that hubble sent back were were faulty because there was a, it was an issue with the optics um and then various space shuttle missions saw nasa astronauts going and yeah and and you know um fixing it basically and then updating it throughout the throughout the years um, but that's not going to be possible with JWST it's going to be uh, 1.5 million kilometers from earth mm-hmm. um so probably take quite a bit to send an astronaut there to fix the JWST so you know so, yeah, a little
3: bit <laughs> yeah
0: <laughs> so that that's also one thing that has to be taken into consideration when you when you when you look at sort of setbacks and delays with the project i mean they they've got to get it right
3: yeah there's no redo's on this one
0: no that's it
3: I think one of the other things to me that's really interesting is because it's taking such a long time. And and bear in mind that with like massive missions like this, it might take 10 years to build it, but there was another 10, 20 years before that where they were planning it. Mm. And so they were first considering this like back in the 1990s, like they had Hubble, what's next? And back then, they didn't know about exoplanets, really. The first ones were only discovered in the early 90s. Mm-hmm. And... So, when they were designing it, they had no idea that j w s t might be useful to look at the atmospheres of exoplanets. Now, that's a thing it might be doing. So I just think that's you know this that's one of those reasons why you build these incredible machines is to do the thing you know, but also it might end up being really useful for a thing you don't know about yet. Mm. now, the j w s t will be quite far away from Earth. It'll be one point five million kilometers away, as Ian said. Uh, but a little closer to home is the moon. And there's actually quite a lot of stuff going on at the moon in 2021, or at least around it. The first missions that will be hopefully heading off at some point in late 2021 is the Indian Space Research Organisations, or ISRO, will be sending a redo of their Chandrayaan-2 mission called T- Chandrayaan 3 funnily enough. And so you might remember that back in September 2019, India tried to land on the moon with their Vikram lander as part of their Chandrayaan 2 mission. And it failed at the last minute. Just as they were coming in close to land, uh, one of the rockets, one of the thrusters, went awry. Um, the thing flipped over and it ended up crashing into the surface. They got very close. But just at the last minute, things went wrong. So they are now redoing the mission in late 2021. And so hopefully, India will be getting to land on the surface of the moon. Now, obviously, they are not the only nation that's trying to get to the moon. Uh, We've already talked about China, who are currently there at the minute. In fact, at the end of the year, they actually did a sample return mission from from the moon um, in a couple of weeks sent a mission, blasted off and turned, came back with a sample of moon rock. But also the other people who are very vocal about trying to get to the moon are NASA. Um, But they're not going with robots. They're trying to go with people. And they are hoping at the end of this year that they will be able to launch their Artemis 1 mission, which is going to be the first big big step towards their Artemis mission, which is their mission to put the first woman on the surface of the moon. And this will be the test of of two big aspects of that. The space launch system, uh, which is the heavy launch rocket that is going to carry everybody to the moon. Um, Basically the, the equivalent of the Saturn V that launched the Apollo missions. And also the Orion crew capsule. Neither of these have been tested before, so it'll be an interesting situation to see how that happens. Whether or not it will happen this year or next year is a bit of a question at the moment. There was a, an issue with the space launch system. They were running a test at the end of 2020, and it got delayed just by a couple of weeks for for various reasons. And that has unfortunately put the timeline it's not put the timeline in jeopardy yet, but it has shortened the amount of wiggle room they have. Um, <laughs> so, if anything else goes wrong on the space launch system, there could be some issues.
0: Yeah,
3: the deadline for the the final Artemis mission, the one that will land a person, uh, the first woman on the surface of the moon, is for twenty twenty four, which was. Initially, it's supposed to tie in with uh, Trump's, the end of President Trump's second term, if he got one. He hasn't. So there is now a question about whether or not NASA are going to be as feverant about getting that 2024 deadline. Well, that's, again, another political question. We'll have to see what happens when the new administration comes in, uh, which hasn't happened at the time of recording.
0: No. Um, I I think it's really interesting, this um, notion of you know, it's almost sort of like looking towards a a permanent human presence on the moon, and it sort of reminds mm-hmm. me of that statistic fun fact that everyone mentions when talking about the legacy of the International Space Station. Is that you know anyone born after a certain time when the ISS has existed has never been alive when there wasn't everyone else on the on the Earth. If you, mm-hmm. if you know what I mean, if I've said that correctly. So beyond a certain time after the ISS, the launch of the ISS. There hasn't been a time when every single human being has been on Earth, yeah. And so once this this permanent presence on the Moon is is sort of uh, implemented, and there's you know potentially an, an overlap of crews, then we're potentially looking at a situation where there will always be a human being on the Moon, and I find that mm-hmm. really, really mind blowing to to consider.
3: Yeah, that's a, that's a big one because it's it, even when when you're talking about the International Space Station in low Earth orbit. They're still not that far away. Mm. The International Space Station, I don't think goes more than about 400 kilometres away from Earth at any point. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, the distance between Bristol, where we are, and, you know, London and back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's hardly, that. that's no distance at all. So the idea that they're going to the moon, which is more like 400,000 kilometres away, that's quite a big difference, you know, that they're, they're really going away from home (laughs) at that point
0: yeah and again you know sort of like we were saying with the jwst that just that extra distance just makes it a bit more you know a bit more sort of risky dangerous i mean if something Mm. something goes wrong on the iss you know it's not it's not within the realms of possibility to to fairly quickly send up a rescue mission but if you've got to get to the moon you know at a moment's notice then uh things become a bit more tricky don't they so it's just that Little bit of extra um risk involved. But no, it's been interesting, all the stuff that's been happening over the past few years in terms of, you know, the discovery of, of water ice on the moon and things like that. because um, mm. people talk about, you know, water being a, an amazing resource in terms of, you know, breaking it down into oxygen or, you know, turning it into coolant for rocket launchers. You know, you could you could put a telescope on the moon, you could launch missions mm. from the moon. Um, you know, it's 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 sort of um the fact that it's taken us this long to get back to the moon since Apollo. Uh, a lot of people find it frustrating, but if we're able to to go back um, with a better idea of what we what we what we can do and the capabilities and better technology, then perhaps it was worth the wait after all, you know.
3: Yeah, and actually, there will are it's more than just uh, a bunch of testing the equipment. There is actually going to be some experiments that will run during Artemis One. For instance, there is going to be several experiments which are going to look more detail of the water ice that you were just talking about. There's also quite a few experiments measuring the effects of space radiation because one of the problems with going that far away from Earth is that you're away from Earth's protective magnetic field and so radiation is a much bigger problem. So one of the things that they're going to do is they are going to send some yeast to see what happens to yeast when you affect it dose it with a bunch of space radiation. And they're also going to send two female mannequins, because it's the Artemis mission to send the first women, which are going to be wearing radiation vests, or at least one of the mannequins will be wearing a special Astro rad radiation vest, and the other one won't be. And these mannequins are going to have a bunch of sensors on to see how uh how well these these radiation vests are at protecting humans from the effects of space radiation again that one that that is a thing that when we were just sending the apollo astronauts and they were only going for a couple of days at a time the radiation wasn't a big deal but if you've got people living there permanently it becomes it, it becomes something that we begin to need to worry about. Yeah. So one of the ways they're hoping to, to combat it is with special vests and clothing that will help absorb the radiation and hopefully look rather swanky at the same time. <laughs> Looking at the pictures earlier, they look quite. They, there's definitely some some space age styling going on. <laughs>
0: cool. Yeah, but from from sort of crude missions to. Back to uncrewed missions, um, another one of the big stories this year is going to be uh, Osiris-Rex, which um, sort of following on mm-hmm. the heels of ja- Japan's uh, Hayabusa 2 mission is a, a sample collection mission um, at a near-Earth asteroid called Bennu. Now, Cyrus uh, rex uh, arrived at Bennu in December 18, and it's due to return this um, sample of of the asteroid itself um, in 2023, a bit like what we were discussing with Perseverance and, and the Mars, Emission, mm-hmm. And as, as we've said in the podcast before, you know, this, this interest in sort of comets and asteroids is because they are these primordial specimens left over from the formation of the solar system. So studying them gives you clues as to what the early solar system was like. You can um, learn potentially about the emergence of life, how, how, how uh, water was delivered to our planet's oceans. And, you know, Bennu itself is rich in water and organic molecules. Um, so that's why it was such a such a good um, target for study. Um, mm-hmm. Since arriving at the, the asteroid, uh, the OSIRIS-REx spacecraft has been mapping the surface, studying its chemistry, topography and mineralogy. And recently it successfully stowed a sample of Bennu, which it collected by sort of tapping the asteroid, um, for want of a better word, and sort of <laughs> bl- blasting nitrogen onto its head, and this um, causes particles to fly off uh, and into a storage compartment. There was an issue last October. There was a fear that the spacecraft had captured so much material that it was leaking. But uh, the latest mm. from NASA says that they, they've ensured that the, the sample is safe and it's due to return in September 2023. Um, and as we were saying with, you know, Perseverance and, you know, the, the Apollo samples, these are samples that you can study and you can also store for generations to come. Future, future PhD students and, you know, scientists will be will be looking at um, the Osiris-Rex um, samples for, for decades to come.
3: I always think it's surprising that we haven't been to an asteroid before. Mm. Um, I mean, I know the original Hayabusa mission tried back in the early 2000s, but it's you know, we we've been to like we went landed on a comet before we landed on an asteroid. Mm. <laughs> and that just seems a bit backwards to me. Um Especially because when you look at most most missions that are going into the the outer um solar system there's always they always send back a couple of pictures of an asteroid because the things are everywhere <laughs> 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 it's just like yeah. <laughs> well we happened to be flying past it so we snapped a couple of shots
0: <laughs> yeah and especially when you consider you know something like the rosetta mission around comet 67p you know the fact yeah. that it was like it 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 followed um 67p and it's orbit around the sun but also i mean put a put a lander on it i mean yeah fair enough like the lander didn't really work it sort of bounced off the surface but they they still did it and they still sent back you know data from that lander they they effectively landed on a comet but you mm. know Bennu and have two aren't really even landing well high two did send rovers down but you know like a science rex is just is, well i say just it's just tapping and going really isn't it and um mm. but yeah that, that i mean it brings you back to just how amazing that that uh that uh, European Space Agency Rosetta mission was.
3: It's it's partly it's actually more difficult to land on something that's small mm. because it's the the escape velocity, which is basically the speed that at which you bounce off it um, and and launch yourself into orbit again, is so low. If you were standing on the surface of of I know when you were if you were standing on the surface of the Rosetta comet, most people could jump and escape it. and so you've got to come down and land extremely extremely carefully and really match speeds to be able to actually land on the surface and stay there so yeah it's surprisingly difficult Mm. but people have managed it
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, and as we we were recording this um, we were due to talk about uh, the end of NASA's Juno mission um, Mm. at Jupiter um, which arrived at Jupiter on the 4th of July in 2016 and has just completely blown everyone's minds with just its images and its data of you know Jupiter's tempestuous atmosphere and its great red spot and its you know polar cyclones and you know its 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 belts and zones these cloud bands and just absolutely incredible images and um, and the prime mission is um due to be completed in July 2021 but um as we're recording NASA has just announced um an extension of the mission so Juno is going to have an extended secondary mission which is going to continue until September 2025 or until the end of the spacecraft's life I guess whichever comes first Um, and the expansion is going to be looking at um, and the expanded mission is going to see Juno uh, explore the the whole of the Jovian system so Jupiter and its rings and its moons it's going to be flying around um, three of Jupiter's so-called Galilean moons uh, Ganymede, Mm -hmm. Europa and Io um, and it's going to expand on what the mission has already discovered about its interior structure, its magnetic field, its atmosphere, its magnetosphere, and as I said before, those, those um, incredible storms. Um, mm. I mean, it's, it's interesting thinking about the, the Juno mission in terms of the, the physics of its, of its orbit, because it makes these, these huge loops, sort of like almost like an elliptical mm. orbit, whereby it goes really far out and then comes back into these sort of grazing close flybys. And as yeah. it does that... Um, it, that's that's where we've got these Im- Im- amazing close-up images of the Great Red Spot and things like that. But the other thing that's really interesting is it's a, it's a polar um, orbit. So for the first time ever, we were able to see what the north and south poles of the planet look like, because most people will recognize an image of Ju- Jupiter as being you know that stripy appearance of the Great Red Spot. Mm. But if someone were to show you a picture of its south pole without telling you what it was before the Juno mission, you probably wouldn't have guessed that it was Jupiter, and it's discovered all sorts of things. You kind of mapping and mapping Jupiter's auroras, so, and you know Earth's not the only planet that has aurora. It's been sort of uh, peering through the clouds down in the depths of the Great Red Spot, and learning about the the water makeup of its atmosphere. And you know w- one of the things that I've really enjoyed is um, the the images that have come back from JunoCam because they have pretty much exclusively been processed by citizen scientists to an extent that I personally haven't seen in a, in a mission before. So if you, if you, I'm sure you can Google it, you just go on the JunoCam website and you can download the raw data that, the, that NASA makes available that the spacecraft has collected. And you can use Photoshop or any other imaging software that you have, and you can actually process the images for yourself and make them your own. And, and people do that, you know, from the people who are really into it and make these amazing realistic views of what Jupiter would, would look like if you could see it. And um, to mm-hmm. quite funny things, people sort of do like, you know, like Van Gogh inspired um, <laughs> images of Jupiter and things like that. Um, and that's been one of the things I've, I've, I've really enjoyed seeing of the, the uh, Jupiter mission is, is just kind of that, that aspect of citizen science that, as you said before, you know, NASA is so good at promoting.
3: Um, and also, if if you are a person who that kind of thing appeals to, uh, I strongly suggest that you look into the Astronomy Photography of the Year Awards, um, who now have a special category. Uh, specifically for people who process data taken by professional missions. The thing that really surprised me when I heard that the Juno mission had been extended is because um, the reason why it was going to end this year, it wasn't a thing to do with cost, which is why most missions end, or because it had gotten too far away or something like that. It was to do with the fact that That's as long as they thought the spacecraft would last. And the reason why they only thought it would last until 2021 is because of this enormous radiation that you have around Jupiter. That's the reason why it has these long orbits that only go in close to Jupiter for a very, very short amount of time. um, So that most of the spacecraft's time can be spent away from the planet and not being bombarded with radiation. And it turns out that uh, Juno has actually survived remarkably well, much better than they thought it was going to. Uh, It's done a lot more very close passes than was expected, and now the mission is being extended until 2025. However, I should imagine if they are planning on keeping going, if there looks like there is going to be a sign of the spacecraft flagging, they will choose to crash it early um, rather than waiting for it to break down because the reason why they wanted to crash the spacecraft was because they didn't want to risk it contaminating uh, one of Jupiter's icy moons. So there's several moons around Jupiter, um, such as Europa and Ganymede, which might possibly have a liquid water ocean and so might possibly be habitable for life, and not just habitable, but inhabited. If there is life somewhere in the solar system other than here on Earth, uh, people think it's probably going to be on one of these icy moves. So you don't want to risk damaging that with with your alien spacecraft.
1: <laughs> and so yeah. that's
3: the reason why they want to crash it into Jupiter to to kind of make sure that it doesn't contaminate these other worlds.
0: Yeah, anyone who remembers the the end of the Cassini mission at Saturn is the same thing. It was uh, in Enceladus. Mm-hmm. Has an icy uh, has a subsurface ocean beneath its icy crust um and that's the reason they crashed you know purposely crashed um Cassini into into Saturn but um yeah just just, just reading the of sort of the latest from NASA about the Juno mission is going to be um doing some um flybys of the Galilean moons as, as I said but also the the potentially looking at um Jupiter's rings which you know a lot not a lot of people know that Jupiter has rings. It has these faint rings, this faint ring system. I suppose those moon flybys also potentially mean more, more amazing images and more amazing um, data for uh, citizen scientists to download and um, and uh, process themselves. But yeah, I it just it's going to be another great year for for space flight and and for astronomy. Looks like, doesn't it? Es?
3: but if observation is more your thing, then we're going to hand over to Chris Bramley and Paul Manny, who will tell you everything that's coming up in our night sky in 2021.
2: 2021 is set to be a great year for stargazing and observing the night sky. Here to discuss what we can all look forward to appearing over the horizon in the next 12 months, we welcome back long-time observer, the magazine's reviews editor, Paul Money. Hi, Paul. Welcome back.
1: Now then, Chris. Yes, thank you very much. Yes, it's uh, looking forward to uh, this year. Yeah, that's right. Yes, um, a great start
2: to 2021 already. We've had a lovely close gathering of Jupiter, Saturn and Mercury already at the start of January. And what other approaches and conjunctions are on your target list in 2021?
1: Well, a lot of them tend to happen in the first part of the year, the first half, roughly, because that's when we've got the uh, bright planets close to each other. But um, Jupiter gets in on the act once again because on February the 11th, we've got Jupiter and Venus very close together. Um, but the th- trouble is they're in the morning sky. You know, we have to get up for that. <laughs> so, uh, you know, but it's also very low down in the uh, on the horizon in twilight. But, you know, they're bright planets, so that makes them easier to spot in the twilight. And then uh, another one I've got looking forward to is really a close encounter between Mars and the Pleiades cluster. Uh, And that's in March, March the 1st through to the 5th. Really, you're looking for uh, the Mars gradually creeping past the Pleiades. And uh, it's about on conjunction on the 3rd. So it's quite close to the... I mean, I love when we have encounters with the Pleiades, especially the bright planets. So uh, usually it's Mercury or Venus, but now we've got Mars this time. And then talking about Venus... April the 25th, I mean, the two innermost planets, Venus and Mercury, get close together. But they don't just do it once, they actually do it twice, April the 25th, and then May the 28th as well. In fact, they'll be very close. Uh, Not quite as close as Jupiter and Saturn back in December, but pretty close in the sky. So well worth looking out for as well. Um, So, uh, And then finally, in, in terms of really close conjunctions, July the 13th, Venus and Mars get close, and all these are in the evening sky, so they're nice and handy for us to actually observe. They're more, they're more likely to be seen. <laughs> yes. Uh, I mean, we still have a few other close encounters sort of thing. For example, Mars gets close to the cluster Messier 35 in Gemini on April the 26th. So if you like deep sky objects and conjunctions, that's another one, because normally I concentrate on the Pleiades, but this would be a nice one with M35. Uh, it's a nice Bright cluster for Messier not quite as bright as the Pleiades but a really nice one so well worth looking for lovely lovely well that promises to be
2: quite a quite a planet pairing um staying with the planets and larger solar system bodies when will be the best times to see them in 2021 and indeed other larger bodies in the solar system
1: Well, when it comes to, I mean, really, we're talking about oppositions and the the months after opposition, because opposition is when they're visible as the sun sets, but it usually means they're still quite low over in the eastern sky. So uh, it's better to leave them a month or two after that. But in March, we've only got one, really, in the first half of the year, and that's Vesta, the minor world Vesta. It comes to opposition on March the 4th. Now, this is a particularly good time to see that one, because, you know, if you've never seen a minor planet, or asteroid, as they used to be called, then this is a good time. Because it's magnitude six, so keen-eyed people—and I do mean keen-eyed people with really dark skies and no light pollution—have uh, a chance to potentially see that with the naked eye. Uh, you know, you need a good chart, and of course, the magazine will provide good charts for that uh, in due course. But it's in Leo, and it's quite close to a bright star as well, Theta Leonis churton So uh, that's another guy. I always like it when they're close to bright stars; it makes it a lot easier to find uh, and to point out to the public. That's nice and just rem- remind us again
2: when um that's just on the threshold of of being visible with the naked eye isn't it uh, mag- magnitude 6
1: Yes, um, yes, magnitude six, I mean some keen eye can go as faint as seven, um, but uh, it depends on your sky conditions as well and high, how high they are in the sky. but magnitude six is often rec- you know made as the limit for naked eye observations, and uh, I've certainly reached magnitude seven, but uh, nowadays with glasses, not quite as good i'm afraid
2: <laughs> right
1: yeah. Yeah,
2: and um, what about the uh, what about some of the bigger objects? Uh, some of the gas giants are they are they at opposition this year? Sometimes they don't reach opposition, but will they be coming to opposition in twenty twenty one?
1: Yeah, they do. And uh, we have the first up is Saturn in August. In fact, August is doing well because uh, August the 2nd is Saturn and then August the 19th is Jupiter. And this comes back to the fact that last year they were really close together. Well, now Jupiter begins to draw away from Saturn, but they're still reaching opposition in the same month. But I think this year is the last year they'll reach opposition in the same month. Next year, I think Jupiter ends up in July. So it'll uh, completely change. But of course, they're the two main planets. The only thing with the, is that they're still low down. Um, Jupiter's moving away and will be moving creeping up the ecliptic, but Saturn's still very low on the ecliptic, so not well placed to observe. But they are bright planets, so you know you, you can at least see them with the naked eye. And as we've just seen recently with the recent conjunction, it, they were quite spectacular, I have to say. Um, but then we go to the dimmer planets, and we have to we get Saturn, Neptune first on September the fourteenth. Now that does need you can use binoculars, but uh, a, a telescope telescope. telescope, you know, even a small telescope should spot it quite easily, as long as you've got a good chart from the magazine. So, uh, you know, it's well worth hunting that down. And in small telescopes, I have to say, I think it does look a little bit blue, you know, it's slightly a bluish tinge to it. Um, when it comes to the next one we're late waiting for november the 4th just before fireworks night so, <laughs> uranus comes to opposition um this is the jolly green giant sort of thing ever since the peas advert i think on tv <laughs> i've always remembered the jolly green giant but uh, it's a lot brighter and uranus is another of those that is actually uh usually reaches magnitude 5.8 at opposition and that's naked eye again so along with vesta you know it's a potential to try out your naked eye viewing from your site to see how far you can see, how faint you can see. So, uh, so that's in November. So you can see we're getting quite late. And then the final one uh, I've got listed is, is Ceres. Um, Ceres now is, of course, a dwarf planet. So, uh, you know, but it actually gets up to magnitude 7 uh, and is uh, November the 27th for its actual opposition. So, uh, it's, that'll be a, a, a nice one. Again, if you've not picked out a dwarf planet, that's the, the best one, it's the brightest. Um, Pluto is extremely faint, so I've not listed that at all because you need a very big telescope for that. But uh, Ceres, definitely. So, I mean, this year, pick off Vesta and pick off Ceres. I mean, Ceres was the first asteroid um, Vesta was the fourth. So, you know, pick, pick them out and uh, you'll be able to spot them and again Ceres you'll definitely see them with binoculars as you will with Uranus and I say larger binoculars will give you Neptune as well so you know well worth hunting them out but uh, lots of planets in the second half of the year um, as we can chat about a bit later
2: yeah so um, what about the smaller parts of the solar system perhaps the smallest parts we can see dust grains no bigger than grains of sand which produce meteors when they collide with Earth's atmosphere. What are what are the prospects like for this year's meteor showers
1: Paul? Are there any that peak when the moon's when the moon's not bright and stealing the limelight? Well, that's half the battle, isn't it, with meteor showers? We often see them being portrayed, look out for the next meteor shower, and those of us are in the know are groaning because there's a full moon probably up and they're not taking that into account. So, yeah, the moon has a, a big effect on them. Um, the best ones I've listed down are May the 6th for each of the Aquarids. They're in the morning sky, so, again, it's another one where you need to get up for. Uh, you need to wait for the moon to set for that one sort of thing, but, you know, that that's another one worth trying for. The rates are low. They're not a high rate but you know if you can trace them back to the vicinity of Eta Aquarius then you will have picked up one of those meteors um obviously everybody's favorite has to be the Perseids and we've got a good year this year August 11th through to the 13th yeah they're they're definitely favorable for the Perseids the moon is in the early evening sky and setting quite quickly so you get a long night to look out for the Perseids, and they are the favourite. I mean, it's summertime, so hopefully we've got nice warmish weather to set out or be out in our sun lounger, or should I call that the meteor lounger, <laughs> So to watch for them. As long as you don't fall asleep. I've done that in the past, <laughs> lounging out and... <laughs> It, it is it is you know but don't, as I say i have fallen asleep before for an hour or so and then woke up and think where's that gone and i've probably missed the best ones you know you don't look on the internet then to see what other people have said but um, but later in the year we've got fairly good conditions for the draconids they're the october the 8th to the 9th so uh, they're worth looking out for as well again they're not a big shower but you know they get some nice bright ones and then the Geminids, again, the best after the moon has set. And unfortunately, that's around about 3am-ish. But then Gemini is best seen on December the 14th in the early hours of the morning. That's when it is highest. So I would definitely go for them as well, except I'd wrap up warm <laughs> December the 14th. You definitely want to have winter woolies on, etc., and not to fall asleep on your lounger.
2: <laughs> that's probably <laughs> one to set an bright. alarm for, isn't it? Because um, you'd definitely. probably suffer from exposure if you went out um watching the Geminids it's all night in in december um it's quite a bit colder then isn't it and it
1: does make you tired, I mean you, you, and it creeps up on you i mean i 've done long uh, winter observing sessions, and sometimes you 've really got to go in and have a cup of you know a coffee or cocoa, just so, well look cocoa you 'd probably fall asleep after that wouldn 't you but <laughs> definitely coffee to keep you awake, but to keep you warm as well, so you know so definitely an alarm for that, and especially with the moon up, I say after three a m and we 've got plenty of hours of darkness uh, you 've got around about four hours of darkness um, to to view the meteor so plenty of time to get a good one and they have some really bright ones as well so definitely worth looking out for the geminids uh, into 2021 great great so we want the moon out of the way
2: for meteor showers but of course there are times when it should be our main focus uh, for for example in eclipses what are what are the prospects like there what,
1: what are we going to see any um any of those in 2021 Well, the good news is we get a partial eclipse of the sun. It's technically an annular eclipse as it crosses over the Earth's surface. But for us in the UK, we get a partial eclipse of the sun on June the 10th. And of course, as it's during the sun, uh, it's during the day. So, you know, you don't have to get up for this one, Chris. We'll be up. (laughs) Uh, Well, I hope so anyway, (laughs) unless you've had a really long night observing the night before, because that's technically new moon as well. So, of course, this is the idea ideal time in the morning, but you've got the June sky, which is, of course, light nights. So, uh, having an eclipse in the daytime uh, compensates, I think, for the light nights, don't you? But yes, that'll be a decent partial eclipse of the sun for the UK. You've got to observe it safely, of course, um, with specialised solar filters. Um, so, you know, but, it, but it's well worth having a look for that. And, uh, you know, we, we have to wait a very long time before we get decent eclipses in the UK. So, uh, make the best of this if we've got clear That's skies. Right.
2: I think that I think uh, that's uh, one of the best chances of, of seeing a solar eclipse in the UK uh, since 2015 so um it's definitely worth uh, um getting getting that in the diary and seeing if we can uh, you know, getting ready to getting ready to observe that. Um,
1: and and the certainly... good news is because of the annularity of it um, and the popularity of these things on the internet now. Um, even if we're cloudy, there's always the chance you can watch a webcast of the eclipse taking place. So uh, I find that now an exciting part of astronomy, in that you don't necessarily have to miss out if someone someone somewhere has got clear skies. Nine times out of ten, there's a good chance that that should be projected onto the internet, so we can all watch as as well mm, mm.
2: oh that's that's good to know that's good to know good stuff I think there is um there is a total eclipse uh of note um in 2021 um happening on the 4th of December but it's um happening over Antarctica so <laughs> yes uh, yeah. not yes one, there's not going to be not many sites particularly um <laughs> particularly approachable shall we say
1: <laughs> which which is a shame but again you never know I mean uh, the tip of Argentina gets it and uh, the tip of um, sort of uh, 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 part of Australia and uh, sort of South Africa actually pick it up as well so perhaps the South African observatory might be in the right line so I don't know about that but uh, yes it's, uh, this is the, the thing about eclipses that, that literally they can occur across any part of the Earth's surface so you've got to be in the right place at the right time to get the proper totality um, but as uh, I say At least we get the June the 10th one uh, to see in the Northern Hemisphere. And uh, fingers crossed, we actually, being June, we actually have some clear skies. But it isn't just the sun, of course, is it? Um, We have have lunar eclipses. And it's not a big eclipse, but we've got on November the 19th a partial lunar eclipse. The, the, The slight problem with that one, it occurs at moonset, so, again, in the early hours of the morning. But, you know, if, if you want to watch the moon start to go into the Earth's shadow just before it sets, I think actually a setting eclipse moon is just as interesting and exciting. Um, I've actually observed um, some years ago, um, in fact, I was reviewing a, a, one of our telescopes many years ago, and I used it to watch the moon rise during an eclipse. And that was quite something to watch the moon. And you know how the moon sort of like appears to wobble because of the atmospheric refraction. Fraction effect sort of thing, and it was really something I mean amazingly, I actually had a clear horizon. I mean, how shocking is that <laughs> Cl- clear uh, it is yes, yeah. it should have had the champagne out for that, so you know at moonset you 're going to have to have a good clear horizon uncluttered to actually see that, but you know if you like eclipses that 's one to look out for as well absolutely
2: yeah, um, and of course, during a lunar eclipse the um the moon can turn um red can't it across its face the the so-called blood moon um but that's only do- when it when it when the moon is entirely within the uh the umbra i think the kind of the deepest part of the of the of the shadow of of the earth um cast into space is that
1: going to be happening on on november 19th It it will start to look red, yes, um, but uh, say we'll lose the main effect once it's set, unfortunately. But, uh, you know, we should start to see it change. Um, The biggest problem is, of course, that being a partial, um, it won't be quite as dramatic, but the the moon will definitely have a chunk taken out of it or look as if it's got a chunk taken out of it. And, of course, the the moon doesn't actually turn technically red. It's the refraction of the uh, light uh, of our atmosphere that causes it. So it's effectively like all the sunsets and sunrises happening at once, actually as seen from the moon. So the moon would see the earth as a ring of fire in that respect sort of thing. So the sun we be refracted all around the rim of the Earth because of our atmosphere, and that then piles in onto the lunar surface, giving us the red part of the eclipse. We see the red, deep red eclipse, and they can be quite, quite dramatic when we get a good eclipse. And again, you mentioned 2015. We had a really good and clear sky for the entirety lunar eclipse in September. Uh, I think it was 2015, and that was absolutely gorgeous, and I actually got the whole lot that was a shock. <laughs> mm. Mm. I remember that because I remember it was um
2: uh setting my alarm and getting out and going out um when it w- when the moon was quite high um and going out leaving leaving the house um and I had to walk at, you know a bit of a distance in the dead of night to to get to get to the area of sky where it was visible. Um And it was it was it was rather surreal getting out there and just and then, you know, looking around and there you are confronted with this with this um, uh, blood red moon. It it, it was a bizarre, um, a bizarre experience and, you know, really, really kind of took my breath away.
1: It, it can do and you know I, I, it reminds me of one time when I used to live with my parents a uh, little tiny village right across the other side of the hedge was the remains of a churchyard <laughs> and I always remember seeing the blood red moon hanging above that and i tell you what there was a chill went down my spine that night. Oh yeah <laughs>
2: yeah that's right. <laughs> oh goodness me. Oh well, well that's good that's something to look forward to. Um, uh, is there anything else that we should be on the lookout for in the next twelve months, and Paul. Um, there are lots of things, lots of uh, night sky events that we haven't mentioned. Of course, are there any highlights um, that that you suggest to us?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, I it's uh, we, we've got an occultation. I mean, occultations are a bit of an oddity sort of thing because unless they're a really bright star, um, you, uh, you most of them get missed by the public. But uh, would you believe on December twenty fourth? <laughs> So it's the morning, early morning of Christmas Eve, the moon occults the bright star Eta Leonis, which means it'll also be above Regulus. Now, Regulus is one of those where we often mention in the, uh, the uh, calendar uh, we put out, the uh, Astrophotographer of the Year calendar. Um, we often mention that the moon is close to Regulus this morning. Well, in this particular case, it's above Regulus, but it's also occulting Eta Leonis as well. So um, a, a double bill there. You've got Regulus, but you've also got an occultation there are other fainter occultations that has to be said um there's one on september the second there's again it, unfortunately an early morning occultation of epsilon geminorum by the moon Mebutza, if i've pronounced that right you know they're they're, they're tongue twisters some of these names aren't they so there are occultations going on but uh, there are other things as well we, we're still with the moon um there's the supermoon on march the 28th this is you know it's Fallen into common uh, terminology now because um, it's actually the perigee moon that's the when the moon is closest to the earth and when it happens to the full, occur the full, with full name moon. for that
2: is um perigee syzygy moon isn't it bit of a mouthful i'm glad, you, I'm glad you said is, it's that it's slightly easier to say <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> I've always had fun it's trying even to worse to spell myself.
2: i won't try yes, spelling exactly. it right now yes
1: <laughs> Exactly. So, you know, I mean, that the, the best one is March the 28th, but the definition is a bit broad. It was done by an astrologer after all. So uh, you could probably say sort of things from February, March and April, uh, each of the full moons will be super moons. But March the 28th is a particularly good super moon. So it, it'll be when the moon is closest to us and uh, it therefore looks the largest. Although, to be honest, you know, unless you photograph them from one full moon to the other, you can't really discern it with a naked eye. But photography you can and it's very instructive to put them together show them it really is
2: isn't it yeah when you when you um do a photoshop montage of um a the smallest moon against the supermoon maybe like half of one half of the other the difference is is quite striking when you when you see it that way but just to the naked eye it's not it's not um immediately apparent that it's that much brighter or that much bigger is it
1: that's why you find a lot of astronomers say, "Oh, it's just another full moon," <laughs> but I say it, it's worth looking out for. You know that, that that's worth. I mean, the moon itself, and the moon. I mean, we, we can't list them all, but I will list one. The moon does have lots of encounters with the planets during the course of each month, let alone throughout the year. And uh, coming up fairly soon, one I think is worth looking at. I always like it when the moon and a star and a planet line up. And on March the nineteenth, we've got moon. We've got the Aldebaran the bright red eye of Taurus the bull and Mars and of course Mars is red as well so you've got two red objects and the moon forming a line on March the 19th so that I think is well worth actually looking out for as well um when it turns we mentioned Mercury and Venus um early in the year and sort of thing and April to May is the best evening apparition for Mercury um when it gets high enough and uh, I remember last year during the first lockdown I had the neighbours out looking at uh, mercury because it was right next to venus because venus was a, a brilliant guide to it um and so you know april to may this year we'll have a similar situation so that'll be an ideal time to pick up mercury but if you're a morning person mercury puts on a very good morning operation during october as well so uh, well worth looking out for that um and of course you know there are other things happening um i again many of us look forward to and, and keep an eye out on the northern horizon from may to late August for the noctilucent clouds, you know, so, uh, you know, and they're so unpredictable that you just can't predict when there's going to be a display, so uh, you keep your eyes peeled to the north looking out, it's a bit like looking out for aurora, I mean, around about the equinoxes, I always keep an eye out for the aurora borealis, northern lights, Uh, so they're always worth looking out for, and that depends on the activity of the sun, but the noctilucent clouds, they're the summer, they make up for the light nights for summer that you get potential display of noctilutens yeah so that's good these
2: are these are the highest clouds in the atmosphere aren't they they're right on the
1: on the edge of edge of the atmosphere on the on the border with space aren't they and they're so high up they're still in direct sunlight um even though for us yeah, exactly. The set; is below the horizon. But, of course, being light nights, the sun isn't that far below the horizon, so it's still a quite lightish night. But normal clouds, they go up to about five miles, so they will be in darkness. And I've got plenty of photographs where i have got sort of dark clouds, ordinary clouds, and then the noctilucent clouds shining above them. And, uh, and in some cases, shining through gaps in those dark clouds as well. So that can be quite something. They have some lovely colours sometimes to them as well. They're generally a silvery blue but uh, they do have some interesting colour variations if you look closely, especially in binoculars. And there's a lot of sometimes fast-moving details, so definitely look, one to look out for. And then, really, the, the end of the year um, is quite... Uh, I, I love this, where we get lots of planets visible In one go, and the the end of December, say the last week of December, so from Christmas Day through to the January the 1st of 2022, we'll have Mercury, Venus, Saturn, Jupiter, Neptune and Uranus all visible in the evening sky. And then if, if you're really dedicated, you can stay up for Mars in the morning, and on the 28th, there's Mars and the Crescent, oh, sorry, the 29th, Mars and the Crescent Moon. So, you'll have the Moon and Mars as well. So, uh, and there is Ceres in the area sky as well. So, if you wanted to throw in the odd asteroid or dwarf planet, you could do that as well. So, there's like a, a plethora of planets and uh, sort of solar system bodies available to observe. And those diehards could also argue, if you did the observations carefully of the sun in the daytime, you've also got the biggest object in the solar system on display, so uh, lots and lots of things to look out for.
2: Something of a something of a solar system marathon to end the year with. Then
1: it would be, yeah, yeah, it'd be an ideal time. And it isn't impossible, but Pluto would just about be visible, but it would be very, very low. You'd have to get that first, but that would be a real challenge, to be honest. A real challenge. <laughs> That's quite
2: something. Well, what a what a what a way to end. Um, end the year that's that's really something to look forward to yeah well paul thank you for talking to us about the delights of the night sky to come in 2021 um and i hope that gives you listeners a little bit to look forward to over the coming months as ever keep an eye out for coverage of all these events in the magazine and on sky night com.
1: here's the clear skies i'll i'll go to that yes
4: Although Mars is fading, and its appearance at the start of February is a long cry from the brilliant disk that was on view last October, the planet will remain interesting to watch with the naked eye over the month as it gets closer to the beautiful Pleiades open cluster at the month's close. As February begins, however, Mars is in southern Aries, approximately midway between the stars Hamel and Menkar. Despite its diminished brightness, the planet's orange hue will still be obvious at this time. Over the course of the month, Mars nudges further east. On the evening of the 16th, the red planet passes south of the star Delta Arietis, and then a waxing crescent moon joins Mars on the 18th, with the moon's disk appearing just below the red planet in the early evening. Mars then moves from Aries into Taurus on the 23rd of February and it remains the most northerly planet, appearing 55 degrees up as darkness falls. As the month closes, Mars will be ready to pass just to the south of the Pleiades, which will be visible in the early evening. Extending the line of Orion's belt up and right guides you to the orange star Aldebaran in Taurus. Keep the belt line going to arrive close to Mars at the month's close.
3: So that's it from us this month. Make sure you pick up the February issue of BBC Sky at Night magazine to find out even more information about the best stargazing sites of 2021, as well as hearing all about the details for the upcoming Astronomer Photographer of the Year competition, learning about the ups and downs of planetary robotic exploration and discovering why Jupiter's moon Europa appears to be glowing. And that's not forgetting our regular sections that will help you unlock the wonders of the night sky, find the right equipment to observe it with, and discover the best things to see after dark this month. From all of us here at BBC Sky at Night magazine, goodbye.
2: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Radio Astronomy podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine, which was produced in our Bristol studio by Jack Bateman and Ben Hewitt. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skylightmagazine.com or head to iTunes, Acast or Spotify.